You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, thank you for allowing us the past few weeks to go through a lot of scripture. But when you teach narrative, you got to tell the story. So that's the story, and we're going to dive right in. I hope you have your connect cards. And uh, the topic this morning, anchored metaphorically, in the midst of the storm. Now, biblically speaking, who's our anchor? It's Christ, as we see in Paul's life. And so what an encouragement. But the symbol, the Christian symbol of anchor, goes back literally to the second century AD. Let me show you a picture here that really captured my attention. This comes from the catacombs in Rome. Why catacombs? First 300 years of Christianity, extreme, intense persecution. To name and claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it costs you. And sometimes it costs you your life. So here's a uh, catacomb and tombstone of a believer who was martyred and persecuted for his faith. We have his name. But notice the beautiful symbol that's on his tombstone. It's an anchor. But the anchor also has a cross. And tethered to the anchor are two fish. The fish to your left would be the ichthus, if you're familiar with the Greek letters. Ichthus meaning Jesus Christ, God our Savior. The other fish to the right is us. We fish for men. What a beautiful picture to put on the catacombs on your gravestone as you were martyred for Christ. Remember the first 300 years, and we're going to talk a little later in this service about persecution globally today. It's equally or greater than what it was in the first century, second century, third century. It's remarkable. And so the Bible is very clear that anchors a picture of our walk with Christ, and we can be anchored in the midst of the storm. Let me read for you Hebrews 6.19. You don't need to turn there. But Hebrews talks about the promises being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And therefore it declares, we have this hope, the hope of the promise that God fulfills through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our salvation, as an anchor for our lives. Notice the two beautiful words there, safe and secure. When you read Acts 27, it is one miracle after another. Paul was in the hand of of his great God and Savior, and in the midst of the storm, he was safe and he was secure. And friends, regardless of the storm that you and I are experiencing today, there can be peace in the midst of the storm. That's remarkable. I'll be honest with you, this morning I woke up and I was probably the weakest I've been in the longest time. I said, all right, Lord, how do we approach this day? Well, let's try to approach it as a normal day take a prayer walk. And so as I just walked out of the neighborhood and crossed over 169 and the sun's coming up, I tasted of God's glory. And there was a little bit of refreshment for the soul, a little bit of strength when you're weary in well-doing. And again, I don't know how you come this morning, but he can anchor you regardless of the storm. Now, I am convinced in the book of Acts, there's a lot of persecution. Remember, we hit already Stephen, the first martyr stoned. Why? Preaching the gospel. I mean, that's pretty intense. James, uh, the brother of John, uh, murdered under Agrippa for the gospel. There's a lot of persecution. But if there's one guy who needed an anchor, as we've been studying, would you agree it's Paul? 
My goodness, it just seemed like he got hit left and right wherever he went. I do want to invite you this morning to stand just to get your, your blood flowing. Jason and I have a little bit different paradigm of standing. Uh, blood flowing is good. I don't want you to nod off. Uh, but, and I also want to take a moment to have you turn to a passage. You got to turn there. It's 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. And why do I turn there? Because this was written four years before what takes place in Acts 27. This was written from Paul in Macedonia as he was heading to Corinth, a church that really struggled with his apostleship. And he's brokenhearted. He's kind of defending himself. And he's reaching out. He's saying, listen, you think I'm a hard charge. You think I'm this. You think I'm that. I'm a broken man. Let me share his brokenness as he recounts his ministry journey. If anyone needed an anchor, I believe it was Paul. Paul writes, I've experienced far more labors, far more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from Jews. Can you imagine what his back looked like, folks? Five times. Quite remarkable. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I'd spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers, labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold, lacking clothing, not to mention other things. There's the daily pressure on me, and I think this is the thing that got Paul the most. My care for all the churches. He was a church planner. He was a pastor. And he knew the churches were being ravaged. First Corinthians, read that letter. He cared for the church. He knew uh, the church at Corinth was struggling again, therefore he writes 2 Corinthians. He's trying to identify and build bridges with them. And here's how he concludes this passage on hardship. What does he say? Who is weak? And I am not weak. And so it's rhetorical. He's saying, guys, listen, I can identify with the sufferings of Christ, with the brokenness, but I am anchored in the midst of the storm. That's a beautiful testimony. Would you agree? Please be seated. So Acts 27 is four years later. And if you've been with us in this journey, guess what? Been a lot more. He's in Jerusalem, right? They want him dead. He gets shipped off to Caesarea, two years in prison, two years. He's there, faithful, testifying to Felix Festus and Agrippa. Now he's shipped off where? To Rome. Let me ask you a question. Did Paul bemoan his storms? In fact, what you read in his testimony is he really looked forward to going to Rome. Why? He was on mission. He really believed in his heart of hearts that he would have the privilege to preach Christ to who? Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about Emperor Nero, he was a barbarian and he hated Christians. Paul had a platform to preach Christ not only to Nero, but to Praetorian Guard, the elite of the Roman soldiers, and he was looking forward to it. However... <laughs> From Caesarea in Israel to Rome, there's another journey, another path that God takes him on. Wait, I just thought you were going to take me to Rome. What about all this ship and 14 days and storms and shipwreck? Well, friends, here's the deal about you and me. 
generally, I would say this about Keith Bissell. I'm objective-oriented, right? I want to go from Caesarea to Rome. Get me there on time. Plain lands, we're good. Guess what God is? He's not objective-oriented. He's process-oriented. Why process-oriented? Because the journey from Caesarea to Rome, there were many storms. And God was forming, shaping, molding, not only Paul, but advancing the gospel. Did you hear what happened? He's saving many lives. He's on mission. He's praying for these people. They finally get some food after 40 days of not, 14 days of not eating, and he's offering thanks. And all these prisoners, crew, pagans are hearing about the great God and Savior. He welcomed the process. How about us? I'll be honest, I'd rather just go one flight. We're there. But God has often different plans. And so let me show you a picture of a cargo ship. This is a replica of what it would look like. Paul boards this ship. And uh, just typical in the ancient world, we have a lot of data from the ancient world. Let me show you the map that he was on. And I, I can't go into all the details, but basically, to your right, he starts out in Caesarea. That's where he was in prison for two years. Then he goes around the island of Cyprus. He stops off in Asia Minor. They switch boats. At Asia Minor, he gets on an Egyptian boat. We had a picture of that. We just kind of stuck with the map. Then he, you know, they're following the, the winds, the storms. It's the time of year, it's in the fall, and then he goes down to a place called Crete, and things went from bad to worse. 14 days of mess, they're jettisoning cargo, they're wrapping the boat with rope, they're wondering what their future holds. And so let me highlight, back in your Bibles to Acts 27, let me highlight what's going on, verses 14 to 15. But not long afterward, a fierce wind called the Nor'easter. Northeaster, rushed down from the island of, of Crete now. Since the ship was caught and was able to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Now notice verse 20, if you would. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. And notice this phrase, folks. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. Let me ask you a question. That's a commentary by Luke. By the way, God favored Paul with the Roman centurion, Julius, and he gives him two companions to go to Rome. One is listed Aristarchus. He's a believer from Thessalonica. The other's listed, it's his companion, Luke. Luke writes a firsthand account. He was there all along this journey. Everything you're reading is precisely how it happened. So everybody is losing hope except two. Definitely accept the Apostle Paul. Paul knew about process. Paul understood how God took the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, could have had a nice short route along the coast, and takes them through the wilderness for how many years? Forty. And the Bible says to shape them, to test them, to mold them, to make them trust and depend on God. There's value in the process. And so everybody lose hope, not Paul. Why? Paul was anchored. And what was his anchor? His anchor simply, folks, was the word of God. Let me show that to you. Two years earlier in Acts 23, while he's in Caesarea, verse 11, the Bible says this, Jesus stood by Paul and said, have courage, Paul, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify where? In Rome. 
That was two years earlier. Paul hung his hat on the word of God. God revealed, I believe, let's move forward regardless of how challenging the storm is. Now, you might say, well, that's just unique for Paul. No, I think that's absolutely the pattern and norm for every disciple of Jesus Christ. Can I show that to you? If you're taking notes, mark down Matthew 14, 22. You remember Jesus and his disciples encountered some storms, right? There wasn't just one. There was numerous storms. One time he calmed the storm. One time he's walking on the water in the midst of the storm. He calls Peter forward. Peter steps out of the boat. Remember that? These are big deals, storms God uses to create a picture of discipleship, being conformed to Christ. And so Matthew 14, 22 states... Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boats and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Why did Jesus make his disciples get into the boat knowing a storm was coming? It's purposeful. There's purpose. There's meaning. There's pattern behind the storms of our life. What is God doing? He's process-oriented. He's shaping and molding and making us into the image of his son. In that situation, Matthew 14, there was an aha moment with the disciples. What happened? They saw Christ for who he was. He was in control of the storm. He was the God overruling the storms, and they worshiped him. They stood in awe of him. Friends, that's remarkable. That's what the storms of life can do for you and me. We can stand in awe of God as we see him work through the pain, the trials, the hurt, the suffering of life. And so I believe this. Those who claim that all who follow Christ will always have smooth sailing are misunderstanding or misinterpreting the Bible. I would love to get up as a preacher and say, hey, come to Jesus. It's all smooth sailing. I know your experience and mine is just the opposite, right? Because God forms us in the midst of the storm. Thank God for that. Thank God that we can be anchored when the storms come. F.B. Meyer, one of the great theologians, said this. He said, if I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I am on the right road. Please remember that, folks. We're not wishing pain on anyone. That ain't the issue. But when there is the, the jolts, when there is the, the wonderments, the hardships, the pain, the suffering, 14 days, all hope is lost. Be anchored because God has a plan and he's already pre-revealed that. What a beautiful way to live. And so we get to Acts 27. Let me show you 21 through 22. Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you, this word keeps coming up in the book of Acts, take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. I want you to try to picture yourself on that ship. You're one of 276. Picture yourself, Julius the Centurion, just trying to get these prisoners to Rome. You're doing your job. Picture yourself as part of the crew. Hey, I, you know, I'm making a living. I'm, I'm getting this boat from Asia Minor uh, there to Rome. Picture you're a prisoner like Paul. I'm like, man, this is a rotten deal. How do you think Paul was viewed right now on that ship? Do you realize he was captaining the ship? He was leading the way. 
Luke chronicles that he had favor with the centurion Julius who was in charge of everything. And who is Julius following? He's following Paul. Paul had a divine appointment. Yes, it's in Rome. It's coming, chapter 28. But the divine appointment was a process. And now we are in Crete, heading to Malta, where they're going to be shipwrecked, and there is a ton of ministry going on, including 276 who are on board. This is remarkable, folks. This is God. This is divine appointment. I think you would agree, Paul faced the same storm that the other 275 did, right? Same storm. But his response is absolutely over the top. And so radically different. Why? Because he's anchored to Jesus Christ. The hope of his salvation. A purposeful God. He's on mission. And he's trusting for God's will to be accomplished. And so that leads us to the blessing this morning. And the blessing is this. Every Christian can courageously face the storm of life by being anchored to Christ. I've never preached on this chapter before. This was a, quite a remarkable week, just a lot of scripture, a lot of reflection, a lot of prayer, but I love the metaphor, being anchored. Why? The promise, the hope we have through Jesus. So I want to share with you just simply four anchors that you and I can have in the midst of the storm. Anchor number one, anchored by God's presence and purpose. We've talked much about presence before, so I won't uh, develop that a lot, but I did read something by C.S. Lewis this past week that really got my attention. I like him. He thinks well. But look at verse Acts 27 before we get to Lewis's quote. Paul says, for this night an angel of God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That's the pattern in the book of Acts. Paul experienced the presence of God constantly. Here's what Lewis says. Lewis says, Jesus walks everywhere incognito. I like the word incognito. I don't know where they get such goofy words, but you know what incognito means, right? He's right there. He's in our midst. And then he says this, and Jesus the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember. That's why the Bible is all about remembrance. Do this in remembrance to me. Remember what God has done, Psalm 103. To attend, in fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. A number of weeks ago, I shared one of the paradigms that Ellen and I have is enter each day with eyes wide open. Stand in awe of God. There's so many things he's doing in real time that we can just praise him, stand in awe. But folks, what about the purpose? This is quite remarkable. And again, we've touched on it already. Yeah, he's going to Rome. But guess what? There's 276 people that are a captive audience. And what is God doing with those 276 people that are living fearfully and fretfully, that are wondering there's no hope? Here's what God's doing. He's saving lives. And we're talking not only physical lives, they were saved, but spiritually, there's ministry going on. Paul was pointing them to the God of the universe. He was pointing them to Jesus Christ as Savior. He was calling them to trust in Jesus. There is ministry, kingdom work in the midst of the storm. How remarkable. And can you only imagine the testimony that Paul uh, brought to the people 
when they were experiencing the storm. He's calm. He's peaceful. He's trusting. Why? Because he's anchored. In 2017, a beautiful picture about the value of being anchored took place. Just imagine you're in Florida with your family, extended family. You're on the beach, and uh, a couple of the kids go in and swim. They get caught in the riptide, and if you're familiar with riptides, it's very dangerous. There's ways to get out. That's a different story. Mom goes in, tries to rescue them. She gets caught in the riptide. Nine family members and friends are caught now in the riptide. The beach and the people are watching. Everybody's fearful of going in except one person. She came to her senses. Let's get anchored on the shore. Let's build a human chain out to the riptide, and let's rescue them one by one. And they did. All nine individuals were rescued that day. Think of the genius here. Think of the picture for the church. Think of Paul. Paul was anchored on the beach. He was anchored in Christ. And boy, the human chain of redemption. How many people were influenced because he was anchored? And friends, when you are and I are anchored and we are on mission, God can use us for the saving of many lives. You know the story of Joseph probably, right? What a train wreck, 13 years. His family forsook him. They lied to dad about him. He's thrown in jail, thrown in a pit. They wanted him dead. And when it was all said and done, Joseph forgives his brothers, brothers at a feast, and he says this. What you intended for evil, what did God do? God planned it for good. The saving of many lives. Folks, it took Joseph decades to figure out and go back to understand what God was doing. We're talking decades. And yet, the conclusion was God was at work. His presence, his purpose. Thank God for that. Anchor number two, anchored by God's possession. I love this. Look at verse 23 of Acts 27. For this night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. Notice the phrase, I belong to. That's a really rich phrase in Scripture, and it's connected to so many metaphors. And I want to highlight three this morning. When you think about Christianity, always think about relationship. Paul was in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so the first picture is this, like a bride belonging to a bridegroom. That's one of the most endearing, intimate, relational metaphors in Scripture. One day, Revelation 19, John saw this. He says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and who? And his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. Who's the wife? It's the church of Jesus Christ. You are the bride here. One of the great prayers that Paul had for the Corinthian church, that we would be a bride adorning ourselves to meet the bridegroom. I know this with my heart of hearts, guys. As painful as the storm is, it purifies our life if we lean in. And it's a gift. It prepares the bride to meet the bridegroom. What a gift. Secondly, like sheep belonging to a shepherd, John 10, again, very intimate, think relational. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. Notice this phrase, I know my own sheep and they know me. 
As the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. One beautiful picture that came out of the ancient world. There's sculptures everywhere. There's painting everywhere. It goes back to the early centuries. Again, one of the great symbols. Let me show it to you. The sheep and the shepherd. This is a picture of absolute and total dependence because sheep have a way of drifting, straying from the fold, getting in trouble, thorns and thickets, cliffs, wolves, predators, you name it, list goes on and on. And what does the shepherd do because they're in relationship? The shepherd goes after Johnny, and the shepherd knows him by name. Maybe I should use a Hebrew name. Ali, A-L-I. And here's the beautiful thing. You take the broken shepherd or the broken sheep, wounded, hurt, maybe uh, under the influence of a predator, and you put him around the neck and you come back and sometimes it's miles. And sometimes a a sheep could weigh 40, 60, 80 pounds. This is hard work, but this is the care and nurture and love of the shepherd. And then third, like a child belongs to his father. Romans 8, 14, this is beautiful. All those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. It's a beautiful phrase, Daddy. This is Aramaic, Abba Father, Daddy. It's intimate. Think about it, bride, bridegroom, relational. Sheep, shepherd, I know him by name. And here's the child saying, Daddy. Some of you know my wife's testimony. She lost her father when she was eight years old. Uh, numerous heart attacks and uh, family of six kids and Nani. And boy, oh boy, the storm hit that home like a fury. And one child after the other drifted and drugs and you name it hit that home. Nani, my mother-in-law, 89, a dear, dear saint today, almost had a nervous breakdown. The storm was so severe because the family just unraveled when dad died. Ellen was eight. But what happened is the grace of God infiltrated that storm. And the gospel came into that home. And six of the seven family members today are walking with Jesus. And Ellen's one of them. Ellen today says, yeah, I lost my dad when I was eight. But I have a heavenly father. He's my Abba, my daddy. That's intimate, folks. That's what Paul is experiencing. I belong to him And boy, we're in a good care. Would you agree? Third, anchor number three, anchor God's servant. Again, this is something that's just so basic to Paul. But look at verses 23 and 24. For this night, an angel of God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Paul knew he was the servant of the king. And his testimony is real simple. He didn't count his life dear. Why? He just wanted to serve his master. He wanted to hear Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful a little. Come, enter your master's joy. Now, friends, we've talked a little bit about opening this passage of persecution. A few years from now, Paul's going to be persecuted. He's going to be martyred. He's going to lose his life under Nero after preaching to him. One of the things then and now is true, the church is being persecuted. You just don't hear about it. It's just hidden. But let me share with you, this is a brand new report, a very deep study, 2021, boots on the ground, given the data. Here's some statistics. It's pretty daunting. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. That might not sound like a lot, but if it's in your country or your backyard or your neighborhood, 
or you lost a coworker or a family member, it starts to add up. In the past uh, few years, Nigeria is the number one country on the globe that's being persecuted for the gospel. Uh, tens of thousands of Christians have lost their life. Secondly, every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. In other words, they're not only going after people, they're going after resources and property. Third, every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Again, this is common news in these parts of the world. The global ratio of one to eight Christians worldwide are facing persecution. Think about it. Let's say there's 100 people here. What does that mean, just practically? That means a dozen of us could be abducted, could be persecuted, could be taken away. This building could be taken out. That's what happens globally. You know where it's primarily happening? One in six believers are being persecuted in Africa, two out of five in Asia. Some of you, we've talked about Ethiopia and the heart we have maybe to go there and keep training. Ethiopia on the list of persecuted is number 38 on the globe. There's great persecution. And so when you go, you go, they know you're supporting. They know you're loving. They know you're caring, you're training, you're trying to help the global church. And so you would think this, with such persecution in Africa and Asia, the church would be shrieking. You know what's happening? Just the opposite. Just the opposite. It's exactly what happened in the first 300 years. The statement that came out of the first 300 years of Christianity, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Think about that. They gave their lives, and the church grew. You want a resource to read? The book is called Insanity of God. It's also a movie by Nick Ripkin. He lost a lot as he served the Lord in Somalia. But he wrote about the persecuted church a few years back, and it's remarkable what God does in the midst of persecution. And so, no, the church isn't shrinking. The church isn't, woe is me, woe is us. The church is believing that Jesus promised this would happen. Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? Hey, look at the Old Testament. They did it there. Look at Jesus. Are we any different? That's why Paul would say in Philippians 1.21, for me, living is Christ, dying is gain. Paul just said, Lord, I'm yours. I'm a servant of the Lord. Read his epistles. He opens the epistles typically. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, period. Some today would translate that slave of Jesus Christ. Regardless, Paul was all in. He didn't hold his life dear. Final anchor, anchored by God's faithfulness. Look at verses 22 through 24. Paul says, Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For this night an angel of God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And look, God has graciously given you all who are sailing with you. Verse 25. Therefore, take courage, men. Why? Because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. This is faith of Paul, but in the faithfulness of God. The object of his salvation is what matters, not necessarily the great faith Paul had. He believed God. God is faithful. 
We heard that this morning in the prayer. When we're not faithful, he remains faithful. Why? He cannot deny himself. Thank God he's faithful in the midst of the storm. Romans 8, 28, sometimes we cliche this and take it too lightly, but it's the heart and soul of this passage. Paul wrote, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. All things, Paul? Shipwreck? All things, 2 Corinthians 11, being beaten, stoned, whipped, thrown in prison, mocked, hated, all things, Paul? All things work together for good. Had some sweet time with Mr. Heath Eckert yesterday, and we were reminiscing uh, some things, and one of the things that came to mind, and we can invite our worship team to come forward, uh, 2020, the COVID that you experienced, and I was reflecting on that as I drove home. It was a tough time for the Eckert family, for wife, Risa, watching her husband suffer, being without him and couldn't get in to see, the girls, of course, the family, the church, and people loved, people prayed, people cared. But I'll never, ever forget talking to Heath as he exited the hospital. And his testimony was real simple. He says, Keith, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the storm, where I was wondering what the future held for my life, he said this, God discipled me. God discipled me in the midst of the COVID, in the midst of the hospital, in the midst of the storm. That's Paul's story. Paul gets discipled. He grows and matures. Why? So he can impart that growth and maturity to others. Write the books. Share his story. Keep sharing the gospel. Let's stand. Let's worship together. Let's celebrate a God who has anchored us through Jesus Christ, regardless of the storm we experience.